I'll ask you to turn with me, please, to the book of James. James chapter 2 will resume our study of the book of James. And if you haven't had the chance, I encourage you to look at the, I don't know what to call it, it's the three-paneled blackboard in the foyer, which kind of captures some of the essence of this series, which we've entitled Living Faith. And in my conversation with Dr. Barker as we were preparing for his series on wisdom, one of the things we came up with was we would also talk about wisdom from a New Testament perspective, and that's why we're actually talking about the book of James. It's not necessarily a wisdom book, but James follows along with the wisdom literature because it's all about living out the truth, or as we've called it, living faith. It's good to be back. Um, I'm grateful for the the chance to relax and um, take some time off in October. Now we're back into our study. James chapter 2. And I have to say, I I always find that scripture passage that we read this morning from Ezekiel chapter 33, both humbling as a pastor and disturbing also as a pastor. Ezekiel 33, verse 30 to 33. As for you, son of man, your people are talking together about you by the walls and at the doors of the houses, saying to each other, come and hear the message that has come to the Lord, from the Lord. Sounds great, right? Well, what comes after isn't so great. My people come to you as they usually do and sit before you to hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them that you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and prays an instrument well. Sadly, not in my case. (laughs) For they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. And I hope not in your case. And James shares the same concern when he tells us in chapter 1, verse 21 to 22, Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. And James's challenge goes beyond simply behavior modification. James is actually talking about true undefiled religion as we would see in verse 26 and 27 of chapter 1. So James is calling on us to develop a genuine gospel culture in the church. And when we use the term gospel culture, we're using it in the way Sam Albury and Ray Ortland would use it in this quote. When the gospel is taught clearly, And when the people of a church believe it deeply, it does more than renew us personally. The doctrine of grace also creates a culture of grace. In such a church, 
The gospel is both articulated at the obvious level of doctrine and embodied at a subtle level of vibe, ethos, feel, relationships, and community. And not necessarily in the way that the washrooms foster that community. (laughs) In a gospel-shaped church, for starters, people are honest in confession, bear one another's burdens, and seek to outdo one another in showing honor. And that gospel culture is the fruit of living faith, a faith that is alive and that is being lived out on a daily basis. And James says in chapter 2, it begins with the way we welcome people. So let's read the text. James chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into you, your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, oh, here's a good seat for you, but you say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my, seat, by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you have become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such a faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and be filled and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by actions, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by my deeds. You believe that there is one God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder. You foolish person. Do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our father Abram considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, and his faith was made complete by what he did. 
And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different direction? As the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So going back to the beginning, James is warning us that if we truly believe in Jesus, we wouldn't play favorites. We would welcome everybody with the same love. And he presents us with a hypothetical situation, a tale of two visitors, one who is well-dressed and apparently wealthy, another who is apparently poor, wearing dirty clothes, and maybe smelling a little bit overripe. How would we welcome them? And that's not just a question for the greeters. It's a question for all of us. Would we greet the poor person with the same warmth and give him the respect and attention that we would give to the rich guy? See, a gospel-saturated people would not discriminate. James says we would show, we should show both persons the love of Jesus Christ. Because we are called to reflect the character of our God who graciously saved us and called us his own children, despite our unworthiness. As Moses would say in Deuteronomy chapter 10, For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And Moses gives special attention to the fatherless, the widow, the foreigner. Those are the people who would have been marginalized in any society. He says, our God cares for those who are marginalized. And we need to reflect that. But James says, if we show partiality, we don't just fail to reflect the character of God. We also have taken over God's role as judge. Because in showing partiality, in discriminating, we've already rendered a verdict about their worth as individuals. You find that in verse 4. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And worse, James says we have not simply put ourselves in God's place. How dare we? We have also become evil judges. Because we've taken over God's place and we're rejecting God's righteous standards. Because remember, According to 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, God looks at the heart, not on externals. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not consider his appearance or his height. I'm so glad. <laughs> For I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. See, during the time of James, people dressed to show their social status. The problem isn't so much that they were kind to the rich man. That was good. The problem was they didn't show the poor man 
the same kindness and regard. And in so doing, they were acting like the rest of their culture. They were assessing the worth of a person by the, on the basis of their appearance. And in so doing, they betrayed their true values. When we assess a person, when we assess the worth of a person by her dress, his looks, or the color of her skin, we are showing how sin has distorted our values. How, as James says, how our hearts are divided. And it exposes how we measure our own worth. James began this passage by referring to our glorious Lord Jesus Christ because he's showing us we don't need to be impressed by wealth or power or fame because we are servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our God is greater than all. And our identity and our worth, as we sang earlier, is to be found in Christ and Christ alone. Not in our looks, not in our stuff, not in our achievements, not in our place in society. And James himself exemplifies this reality. Remember that James is the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, the the physical, earthly brother of Jesus. But in chapter 1, verse 1, he makes no mention of that. Instead, he introduces himself as a servant of Christ. His identity was found in Jesus Christ, in being his servant. And then he goes on to point out that Giving preference to the rich doesn't just fail to reflect God's grace, arrogantly takes on God's standards and inverts God's standards. It also overturns the grace of God. Because according to verse 5, God cares for the poor and the oppressed. Look at verse 5. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Now, mind you, just because you're poor doesn't mean you're saved. That's not what James is trying to say. Rather, James is emphasizing that God has graciously chosen those whom the world rejects, those whom the world would shunt aside. And so when we discriminate, according to verse 6, we dishonor those whom God has honored, those whom God has chosen. And instead, we are joining ranks with those who use their wealth to oppress believers and blaspheme Christ. In in other words, we are joining ranks with God's enemies. See, during that time, the civil courts favored the rich and powerful. And the rich and powerful would leverage their status and use the court proceedings to advance their status by beating down their rivals through slander and bribery. So James here is deliberately inverting the standards of the culture around the church because we need to reflect the God whom we serve, a God who subverts the standards of this world. And James' point is that God's humility condemns discrimination. He talks about Jesus being our glorious Lord Jesus. Because he wants us to remember that Jesus is the second person of the triune God who made himself poor for our sake. This glorious God humbled himself to become a man and died the most humiliating death possible so that we might be reconciled to God and adopted as sons, unworthy though we may be. 
And so the self-humbling of Christ to save unworthy sinners like you and me should move us to love both rich and poor. Because both of them are our neighbors. Both of them need Jesus. And any person that God brings to church is an image bearer of God whom God commands us to love. That's the point of verse 8 and 9. If you really keep the royal law, bond, and scripture, love your neighbor, ask yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law, ask lawbreakers. That's why we have those words of welcome at the beginning of the service. And those words of welcome aren't just, should not just be comforting words. They need to be a reality that reflects the way we treat one another here at Crestwick. And so that forces us to examine the way we, not just the way we treat visitors, but also how we treat our brothers and sisters around us. Do I love those older than myself and those younger than myself by reaching out to them in friendship? Or do I show partiality by hanging out only with those who are like me? See, grateful submission to our humble king means that we love those whom he loves. Not because they're lovely, not because they share our tastes, but because of the very simple fact that this person is loved by God. And God has put him here in the church so that I would learn to love him, hard the way it may be. And I am here in the church so that people can learn to love me even though it is difficult to love me. And this is no minor matter. Again, as far as James is concerned, to discriminate is to be a lawbreaker worthy of judgment. We have broken God's command to love our neighbor as ourself. And to break one command is to break everything. Because it is to disrespect the God who gave the whole law. And that's why James is adamant. Verse 13, judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Now, it's not that we're going to lose our salvation by the way we treat others. Otherwise, well, <laughs> we're all in trouble. Rather, living faith is demonstrated by our care for the people around us. Remember what Jesus said, John 13, 34 to 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples. If you love one another. Love for our brothers and sisters, is evidence of God's word planted in our hearts, changing our selfish dispositions that seek popularity and power. And love for the marginalized proves that we have experienced that gracious love of God and that his spirit dwells in us, freeing us from the bondage of our pride and self-centeredness. And that's why James would call the law interpreted in the light of Christ the law that gives freedom. The redemption of Christ, the redemption he accomplished, frees us 
from the punishment we deserve and empowers us to show others the mercy that we have received from God. So the truly mercy triumphs over judgment. And that leads us to the general principle that James has been talking about. Living faith is demonstrated by its actions. And he illustrates that with another church situation. Suppose there is a brother or a sister needing clothes or food. And James, in this diatribe, expects us to agree that, well, talk is cheap, right? Kind words neither warm nor feed a homeless family that hasn't eaten in three days. And that's part of the reason why I'm glad that we're part of Safe Families. It enables us to love those in need in concrete ways. Verse 17, James is pointing out that your profession of faith is empty unless your faith changes the way you live. Faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. Living faith is demonstrated by its deeds. Moreover, living faith is more than doctrinal accuracy. James points to the demons in verse 20. And, oh no, sorry, verse 19. And their response to the Shema. You believe there is one God. Underlying that is the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The demons would affirm the Shema. They can't help but affirm that there is one God. They've seen him. They've rebelled against him. And now they shudder in fear of him. But their theological correctness has not resulted in love for God. It is fear because they have rebelled against God that they feel towards God. And James is challenging us then with an implicit comparison. Does your belief in God lead you to love and fear Him? See, if your doctrinal assent to the proposition that there is a God does not lead you to love, to honor this same God above all, your belief is vain. Living faith, saving faith, goes beyond holding the right doctrinal opinions or affirming the correct worldview. To be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a Christian, means being in relationship with the true and living God through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. And it's not a faith that we produce of ourselves. It is a faith that we have because according to James 1 verse 18, God has caused us to be born again. Through the word of truth. The spirit has caused the new covenant to be fulfilled in us by giving us new hearts in which he dwells. And so we have new hearts and new affections, new desires. We now delight to live in obedience to God's word that frees us from the bondage of pleasing ourselves so that we may please God who made us for himself. This is the kind of living faith that God gives. It brings us into a persevering relationship of loving obedience to God. 
And to prove his point, James gives us two examples, Abraham and Rahab. And James, in referring to Abraham, bless his heart, has resulted, has, has caused a lot of ink to be spilled on whether or not James and Paul agree. Well, let's just cut to the chase and recognize that according to Galatians chapter 2, verse 1 to 10, James and Paul are in full agreement on the gospel. In fact, Paul in Galatians, would have heartily agreed with James because Paul writes in Galatians 5, verse 6, For in Christ, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. And that's the point of James. That's what James, that Abraham was doing when he offered Isaac in Genesis 22. Before Isaac had even born, Abraham trusted God's promise and was declared righteous. And that's what James is citing in verse 23. Chapter 2, verse 23. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, excuse me, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That happened in Genesis 15, long before Isaac was born. Abraham trusted God's promise and was declared righteous. We were talking about that in catechism class this morning. But the genuineness of Abraham's faith was demonstrated many years later by his readiness to obey God regardless of the cost. As Daniel Timmer points out, to avoid confusing Paul and James on justification, a word which they define differently, it is very important to note that James argues that in Genesis 15:6, God first reckoned to Abraham righteousness, and that is justifying faith, which, to state the obvious, has already served to justify him, was later fulfilled by obedience. God explicitly says as much in Genesis 22:12 when he affirms that Abraham's belief is now proven or made evident. Now I know that you revere God because you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. It is hard to imagine a closer connection between faith and its fruits that manages at the same time to preserve their distinctiveness. See, by offering Isaac, Abraham wasn't just giving up his son. Abraham was giving up the fulfillment of God's promises that had been the anchor of his life for over 25 years. But he did it because he loved God. That's faith working through love. He trusted that God would keep his word. And it's not that his obedience somehow earned God's approval. Abram's faith was made complete. It reached its intended goal when he obeyed. See, genuine faith, living faith, bears fruit in obedience to God. And Abraham's faith serves as a marvelous counterpoint to the faith of demons. Where the demons shudder, Abraham's faith loves and obeys. Or better put, obeys out of love. Rahab's faith, on the other hand, 
stands in contrast to cheap talk. That faith that says to somebody homeless and lacking food, be warm and filled. Because Rahab showed hospitality to the Israelite spies in verse 25. In the same way, was not even Rahab the prostitute considered righteous for what she did when she gave lodging to the spies and sent them off in a different way. In protecting them, she was taking the side of Israel and risking her life as an expression of her faith in the living God. And James uses her example to show that whether patriarch or prostitute, it is living faith that saves. And that fits along with the theme of non-discrimination, doesn't it? Prostitute, patriarch, both of them are saved by faith. But the reality of that faith is shown by its works. As James would say, as the body without spirit is dead, so faith without deeds is dead. So if your profession of belief in God does not make you love God to the point of giving up everything for the sake of following Christ, then it's time to take a reality check because your faith just might be dead. And James is saying, your faith may not even be as compelling as a demon's belief. It just might be an opinion. And so you need to cast yourself on Christ and put your faith in Him. Now for those of us who have genuinely put our faith in Jesus Christ, the challenge is to deepen our understanding, our grasp of truth by growing in love. As a church, in other words, we need to keep building a gospel culture. And, you know... I'm glad that I can say this knowing that our church culture is rather healthy. The way you welcomed our family, the way we received people in general, the way we stayed united during COVID, and our continuing desire to reach out to the community tells me that the gospel is bearing fruit. But as my old professor used to tell us, the biggest room in the world is room for improvement. Here's the vision of what James is calling us to. The genuine love our Lord calls us to is deeper than mere words or deeds. It's deeply heartfelt. Jesus' presence in our lives is the death of indifference, the death of aloofness, concealed under nice words and impressive deeds. His gospel brings us alive to a new reality. We're bound together now. We're family. A church community beautified by genuine love will be safe. We won't have to brace ourselves before entering the church building. We'll be able to exhale, to relax, and rethink our lives at a deep level. If the world around us sometimes injures us, like Frodo's stab by the Nazgul on Weathertop, Lord of the Rings fans, you know what we're talking about. The church is meant to be Rivendell, where we can recover and heal. It should be a relief to turn up each Sunday. When gospel doctrine really enters our hearts, that gospel culture springs to life. And this is what living faith is all about. 
It's not about trying harder or doing better. It is about humbly, in the words of James, humbly accepting the word planted in us, which can save us. Or to use a gardening metaphor, it is having the gospel soak into the soil of our hearts so that Christ's love softens us, moves us to bear fruit, to love him above all. And at the overflow of that same love for Christ is love for others as ourselves. So this morning, let's begin by asking the Spirit of God to examine our hearts, to enable us to repent of the tangible specific ways in which we have failed to love those around us and receiving the assurance of His unfailing love. Move from this place equipped by His love to show that love to others. Let's pray. Father, your word cuts sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. As we think of what it means to obey your word, to recognize the first and greatest command to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, with all our soul, and with all our strength. And the second, which is like it, to love our neighbor as ourselves. We stand convicted. For you know the many times that we have despised the people around us, the evil thoughts that we have harbored, our casual neglect of other people's hurts, our casual, careless hurting of others by our indifference, by our selfishness, by the way we think we know better by the way we put our interests above others. Lord, you know better than we do how deeply we have sinned, how often we have manipulated others so that we can get our way, how often we have put ourselves in your place by daring to think and pass judgment on others. You know all this, Father. We ask that your Spirit would convict us. And as you convict us, Father, point us to the cross. So that as we recognize how deeply we have sinned, we might know and, be, and receive the assurance that Christ died specifically for the reality of our deep abiding sinfulness so that we may know and experience the reality of his unfailing love that has redeemed us 
rescued us from our guilt and shame and has made us your sons, joint heirs with Christ. Oh Lord, we pray that your good news would truly sink into our hearts and go beyond an affirmation to become a living reality in the way we interact with others because it is grounded in a relationship with you, a living, vital relationship of love because we have known your love and it grips us to love you above all. Father, we pray, may your spirit continue to bring this about in our lives day after day so that we may be a people that adorn the gospel to your praise, to your glory. This we ask in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen.